message this morning, the Christian's heavenly dwelling. The Christian's heavenly dwelling. And uh, Paul brings our attention to this particular truth. And uh, I believe it's a truth that we as Christians ought to know, but also look forward to. We ought to be having eyes that are looking forward to our heavenly home. And uh, Paul certainly viewed life that way, and it's important that we do as well. So let's begin reading here in 2 Corinthians chapter number 5 and verse number 1. Paul is writing to the church there in Corinth, and he says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due of what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We think about our heavenly dwelling and what Paul is talking about this morning. How important is our dwelling place to us? And we think of it in earthly terms for a moment. Think about your own home that you go to, where you live. When we think in terms of our material home, how important is that to us? Well, when we're thinking about purchasing a home, we consider several things. We look at maybe the location, maybe the year it was built, the space, the appearance of it, maybe the maintenance uh, that might be needed on this home, and above all else, we're considering the price of the home, right? Our home is important to our lives, but there's another kind of home, different from our physical material home that we go and dwell in. This kind of home is our body. Did you know that your body is a home? It is the home of your soul. It is the home of your soul. You see, this body is a temporary home to your soul, and your soul one day will depart from this body. You see, your soul is your true essence of who you truly are. This body will die, it will decay, it will return to the dust of the ground, but our souls live forever. Our souls will pass from this life and enter on into eternity to another place. And when we think of our bodies, we also like to care for our bodies, right? The home of our soul, we would like them to be healthy, protected, looking good, and above all, above ground. Wouldn't we agree with that? We'd like our bodies to be above ground. But the truth is, this mortal body is going to return to the dust of the earth. It will die because of sin and the curse that has been placed in this world. This this body must return. So what does this mean for our soul then? If this body will die and our soul will depart this body, what does this mean? 
where will our soul be? And this is essentially what Paul the Apostle brings to our attention in this passage about the Christian and what happens with the Christian once the Christian experiences death. Now, it's important for us to understand the context. Understand what is being said here in light of what he just said. Now, bear in mind, when our Bibles were written, as Paul wrote this, it was a letter. There was no chapter breaks. There was no verse breaks. So all of this flows in a particular context, and we must get the context understand what he's actually saying. So go backwards, if you would, in chapter 4, and I want to read verse 8 through verse 18 to give us the backdrop of what Paul's talking about here in our text in chapter 5. In verse 8, he says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the, self, the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are not unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What does Paul reveal to us in this passage? He reveals to us the persecution he's enduring, the suffering, the affliction, and that he is always being brought almost to the point of death for the sake of Jesus Christ. He is in a state in which he's constantly being persecuted, in which uh, he is ministering for the gospel. But notice that as Paul is brought to the brink of death many times, in these experiences he does not fear suffering, nor does he fear death. In fact, he has an entire different perspective that is good for all of us to adopt in our hearts. Paul here has a perspective that looks forward to his heavenly dwelling. You'll notice in the last few verses of that chapter, he says that Christ was working through his suffering an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Think of that for a moment. And given this, Paul's focus is on the things that are unseen because those things are the eternal things rather than the temporal and earthly things. And so this brings us to our text where Paul links those unseen things and the reality that death was pressing upon him to the heavenly dwelling that he will experience 
and that also all believers will experience as they depart this life. Now, what Paul looks forward to here, I want you to understand, this is what each of us as Christians ought to be looking forward to. Christian, if you know Christ, don't get too comfortable here in this world. You're not going to be here forever. Don't, don't think that this is all there is. You're going to depart this life. And, and so just as Paul endured hardship, affliction, and eventually death, so also do, do all of us as Christians in our life. And just as Paul looked forward to his heavenly dwelling, so also do we. So I want to break this text down to you. And I'm going to try to keep a steady pace because I have more notes than I can handle this morning. You know, when I first started to preach, I was worried about preaching long enough. Now I'm worried about preaching short enough. <laughs> Uh, and so I'm going to try my best. Just bear with me, but I want you to get the, the text and what Paul is saying. In our notes here this morning, notice the first heading, Paul's heavenly confidence. Paul has a heavenly confidence here in this passage of Scripture. Now, I want to break down three quick things here regarding this. I'm not going to say quick. That's a, uh, preachers lie all the time when they say quick. So I'm just going to remove the timing factor, all right? But notice with me first, he points out the temporal nature of our earthly dwelling. The temporal nature of our earthly dwelling. Now, Paul's already said he's always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. He's always been given over unto death for Jesus' sake. And he just said that his outer self is wasting away. He's talking about his mortal earthly nature. His earthly dwelling. He knew this. He wasn't going to live forever on this world. But here's what he says in verse 1. And he wants the Corinthians to grasp this. We know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed. Now there's the, the flow and connection. We know something about what happens if our earthly tent is destroyed. Now, now he calls this his earthly home being destroyed. What is this earthly home? He mentions it is his earthly home dwelling place. More specifically, he's talking about his physical body because that is the earthly dwelling place of his soul, who he truly is. Now, he's not talking about his physical material home, but rather he's talking about his mortal human body. And notice what he calls it. He calls it a tent, which is a good analogy. We all know what a tent is, right? I mean, our, our kids, they, they like to just constantly make tents and just wreck the house, right? They want to make it as big as they can and do it as, 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 as wide as they can and try to get it as sturdy as they can, but usually it all falls apart, right? And uh, usually it's us parents who have to end up picking up all the blankets and folding them because they don't really know how to do that real well. Uh, tents, we know what tents are, right? They're, they're, they're not permanent. They're temporary. They're, they're torn down. And Paul made tents while living in Corinth. If you read Acts 18.3, the Corinthians were familiar with tents. They likely sold tents to uh, sailors and those who are housing visitors attending uh, things within the city. So tents were not permanent structures. They are taken down, and they have to be taken down. And Paul mentions that his tent... His earthly home will be destroyed. It will be dismantled like a tent. Now, is this not exactly what we see happens to our mortal bodies? Over time, what happens? If the Lord blesses us with age, and if He does bless us with age, it is a blessing, what do we realize? Our mortal body is slowly being dismantled. It's slowly fading 
away until we eventually were going to die. Now, Paul's body seems to have been dismantled a lot faster than others. He's been beaten, he's been whipped, he's been stoned, he's been left for dead. I mean, he is constantly at the brink of death through his ministry. But many people, if they're blessed to live a long life, experience little by little their body begins to fade. Your strength, your eyesight, your mind, you can name all sorts of things, begins to fade. And this is simply the principle of life and Scripture, what it teaches Peter the Apostle wrote in 1 Peter 1.24, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls. There's not any of us that's going to live forever in our mortal bodies. And so we think of how short and fading our life is. If you want a good uh, picture of this in, in figures of speech and metaphors, go read Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 1 through 7. Uh, that text will lay out, remember the Creator in the days of thy youth because we're all going to grow old and eventually return to the dust of the world. So our bodies, our earthly tents will dismantle. We don't live forever in them. So what hope then do we have for the future? What happens to the Christian once our earthly body is dismantled and it's no longer and we're no longer abiding in it? That's what Paul brings to the forefront here. Notice with me, secondly, our second uh, sub-point here is the eternal nature of our heavenly dwelling. The eternal nature of our heavenly dwelling. Now, notice that Paul says in our text, in verse 1, we know we will receive, we know we will receive something since this temporal dwelling will not last. And here's what he says. We know that if this tent is, of our earthly home is destroyed, and it will be, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, I want you to see the contrast here, because there's a contrast taking place, a comparison. You notice he says our mortal earthly home is a tent, but our heavenly dwelling is a building. Now, contrast a tent and a building for a moment. Which is stronger? Which would you rather dwell in? You know, if you're moving to a new area and you ask the realtor to show you some places to live that you could purchase, if they took you to uh, a house to show you this beautiful house and then they take you to a tent, you might think they're a little crazy. You're not looking to buy a tent to live in, unless maybe that's all you can afford, and that's fine. But by and large, tents, they're not going to hold up well against the weather. They're not going to hold up well against uh, the things of this earth. So Paul's contrast here, it's easily connected to the difference between the Old Testament tabernacle, which was a tent, and the temple that came about. One was temporal and taken down. One was physical and was firm and, and lasted a long time. And so the difference with this building, Paul is talking about our heavenly dwelling. It's a house not made with hands. It's a dwelling place that cannot be manufactured by us. Cannot be created by us. Cannot be given to us by us. It's a building of God. And it's our heavenly dwelling that we look forward to. Now, the question and the debate with this text is to what is Paul referencing? as this building of God. And I'm going to present to you that there's, there's three common opinions or positions on this, and I'll give you mine, and if we disagree, it's really not the end of the world because we're all going to the heavenly dwelling. But the first position is that this heavenly dwelling is heaven itself. 
just the place of heaven in which uh, the glory of God is, in which we will abide in His presence. The second position held is that this heavenly dwelling is the resurrection body that we are to receive on the last day. The third position would be that this heavenly dwelling is an intermediate body given to the soul between the time of death and the resurrection. Those are all, you can see how anyone could get those interpretations from this text. And I wouldn't say that they're erroneous, but I would say that there is a context Paul's bringing out here. So I'll briefly give you some info on this and we'll continue along. In connection with the second option, to say that Paul is going to receive his glorified resurrection body at the moment of death does not fit the context of the Scripture or the truth that the resurrection is future. If the resurrection is future... You see, this building of God that Paul references is in context to the immediate dwelling after death, his immediate entrance as soon as he dies. That's the whole context. That's why I read chapter 4 to you, because Paul is showing us that I am pressed, I'm always on the brink of death, but this doesn't scare me because at the moment I die, I'll immediately enter to the heavenly dwelling, this heavenly home. So... I don't think that Paul talking about the resurrected glorified body fits the context. And there are even some erroneous teachers I was reading that have gone so far to say that Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthians describing the resurrection body in 1 Corinthians 15 that happens when Jesus comes. And then by the time he wrote the second epistle, he changed his mind and actually said the resurrection takes place at death. You ever heard of something called spiritual gymnastics? That's a, that's, a, that's a term I might use every now and then where people jump hoops here and there and start trying to prove a point that just ain't there. So, so understand that, that, that this, I don't believe it refers to the resurrection body at the last day. The other option was that this could be an intermediate body, the Bible said, uh, that, that one is just uniquely given to the soul as they enter heaven until the last day. Now that might be, could that be true? I don't know. We don't have any word on that. But I don't see it to be. Because Scripture only speaks of two bodies in, in Scripture, the natural body of our flesh and the spiritual body of the resurrection. So to say that Paul is referencing an intermediate body implies a third form of a body that God never tells us about. Now, could it be that he didn't tell us about it and it's there? Sure, could be. But I don't see it to be that way. Now, here's what I want to bring that I believe. I believe that Paul is speaking this heavenly building of God, not made with hands. He's speaking simply of heaven itself, that we enter into the presence of God. And that is where the Christian goes when he dies, when he passes from this life. Now, here's a few things that support this view. Firstly is this, the heavenly dwelling is heaven itself most accurately fits the context and content of the Bible. How do we see this? Heaven in Scripture is often compared to a house or a building with rooms or a country with, or a city with many houses. Now go with me to a very wonderful passage of Scripture in John 14. I want you to see what Jesus says. John chapter 14. And look with me at verse 1 through 3. This is such comforting words for us as Christians. And especially as the, for the disciples as Jesus is getting ready to leave them and go to die on the cross. Then he'll be raised on the third day. Then he'll ascend into heaven where he sits at the Father's right hand even now. John 14, Jesus says to his disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's, what? House are many rooms. 
if it were not so, I would have told you that I, 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 I've told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. You'll notice that Jesus references the Father's house, which is heaven. And what does he say about this house? He says that there are, present tense, are many rooms. Now, some will say mansions, but the Greek word literally is rooms. There's many spaces. There's plenty of room there. And because of Jesus' work on the cross, He has prepared the way for His people to be in the Father's house. Now, I, I personally believe that Jesus is not up there with a carpenter hammer and He's building this mansions and building the rooms. It's present tense. Jesus says, in my Father's house presently are. I'm going to make the way for you to be there. And understand that there is no way for us to the Father's house, to that heavenly dwelling, without the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross. Without His blood atonement for sin and His resurrection conquering the grave, there's no place there for us. So what Jesus has done here, He's told His disciples, I'm going to the Father's house, I'm going to prepare a way for you to the Father's house, and that way would be through what He would do in just a few short hours by dying on the cross and rising from the dead three days later. Later, You see, Jesus said, I would take you, would take this to himself. This is what heaven is referenced as, as the Father's house. Uh, we think of Abraham who looked forward to a heavenly dwelling as well. Hebrews 11 and verse 10, he looked for a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. So Abraham looked to the unseen just as Paul was. The second aspect with this text, I believe, is that the saints in heaven are presently described in a spiritual state as being souls dwelling in a spiritual state without glorified bodies yet to come at the resurrection. We read in Revelation 6 and verse 9, he opened the fifth seal and he saw uh, under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Those are souls in heaven who have gone on and died. They're described as souls in a spiritual state. Hebrews 12 and verse 22 and 23 says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Spiritual state. Even Paul, when he was caught up into paradise, tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, 3, I know, not, I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. He didn't know how to discern what his condition was when he was in heaven. And what, what he, what, all that he, the rest that he did see and hear, he wasn't allowed to tell us about. That ought to give us a little insight into these heavenly visits where everybody comes down and writes a book and makes all kinds of money. Uh, Paul wasn't allowed to see what he saw. Just, just, a, just that's, I won't charge you for that one. The plain context of Paul in this passage is a comfort to himself and to his hearers that all the saints immediately at death, immediately at death, they have a heavenly dwelling that they are entered into. A heavenly dwelling, eternal in the heavens. This is why Paul doesn't fear death. He looks beyond death, friend. And often what we find in our world is that death is the most plaguing thing on people's minds. Christian, you ought not to fear death. You ought to be looking beyond this world. Now, I understand none of us, humanly speaking, we don't want to die today, right? 
But if it's God's will for you to die today, you're not going to stop that anyway. You're not. You have an appointed time. And Paul knew that. The Corinthians knew that. And so he's looking forward. He's pointing out that when he departs his body, his soul is not going to be homeless. It'll enter into the heavenly home. Charles Hodge writes greatly on this, and I don't have time to quote all of him, but he says, in effect, he's commenting on this, he, he says, in effect, that the dissolution of the body does not destroy the soul or deprive it of a home. And so the plain comparison here of Paul he's making is not one body with another, but one dwelling place with another dwelling place, one residence with another residence. And so the soul of the believer immediately enters a house made by God, heaven itself, in all of its glory and splendor. And having been brought to this heavenly dwelling, the souls of the righteous continue forever in that state of blessedness until the resurrection day when that blessedness just continues. Friend, once you enter heaven, once you are in that perfect state, there's no going back to this state that we're in right now. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. Entrance to heaven is the commencement of that eternal blessedness, while the resurrection is the consummation of that blessedness. Now, I've got to continue. Look at verse 2. That, that, was, a, that, that, was, that was a bulk of what, some of the things I was going to say, but I've got to keep going. I've got too much notes here. Verse 2, notice what he says here. He says, For in this tent, in this body, this dwelling, we groan, longing to be put on, put on our heavenly Dwelling. What is it to groan? We're all familiar with that, right? You ever been sitting in traffic at Van Buren about 5 o'clock? And you're stuck there and you, you, you sit at one light for about three times? My natural reaction is to groan. I'm groaning. I'm sighing. I'm just like, I can't wait to just hit that interstate exit and just go on, right? And Paul is saying this in, in, in reference to his body. That he groans in this body because it's painful, it's, it's depraved, it's, it's infiltrated with sin. He's saying he groans to get out of this earthly dwelling plagued with depravity and decay. We long for this heavenly dwelling that is not subject to sin and death. We long to get to our true home. When we made the offer on our house and it was accepted, we... Then, then goes the process of packing and moving and all of that. And uh, Anybody love moving? That's another groaning process, right? And so we're lifting boxes, don't know where stuff is. We're groaning and groaning. We're groaning to get into that new home and, and unpack and be settled. And the same thing is true of our own Christian life. We have to be groaning to get out of this world and get on into heaven. We're looking forward to that heavenly home. He longs to put off that tent for the permanent heavenly dwelling. You see, our desire, as Paul says in verse 3 through 4, let's look at our text. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. See, Paul doesn't desire just to leave this dwelling and then have nowhere to go, to be unclothed, be naked. But rather, he longs for his soul to be in that heavenly dwelling. That's his groaning here. He's making clear that upon death, the soul of the Christian does not cease to exist. It's a lie that many will say to you, that you just cease to exist. Atheists love that, that term. 
you cease to exist. No, you don't. You don't just black out. Paul is pointing out the Christian does not cease to exist. His soul does not sink into a state of unconsciousness called soul sleep. And he does not go to some middle place called purgatory. The soul of the saint immediately enters the glorious presence of our Lord. And so with this, he says in verse 4, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Friend, there's no more mortality once you get to heaven. Just eternal life. Notice with the letter C. I gotta, I gotta keep going. I want you to see the assurance of our future dwelling. The assurance of our future dwelling. Now, he says in verse one, we have. We have. Notice he doesn't say, well, we're gonna get or we might get. He says we have. Present tense. Confidence, assurance. How is it that Paul is so confident in this heavenly home of his? The assurance is rooted in verse five. Notice what he says. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God. You know what that means? I take zero credit for me going to heaven. I take zero credit for my heavenly dwelling. Who prepared me for that? It is only God by His grace. He's the one who called me, regenerated me, sanctifies me, and brings me all the way to the end, to where I enter that eternal home. But notice there's something else specific here. This is God's work and His promise, and there's a guarantee to it. And how do we know this guarantee? Notice what He says. Who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. As a guarantee that you are heaven-bound. Now, here's the reality. The presence of the Spirit in us, His indwelling the believer, is a guarantee of our heavenly future. He's a guarantee of that. Friend, if you're... A born-again Christian, the Spirit of God indwells you. Paul says in Romans, if any man does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's not his. So understand that the Spirit of God in us is a evidence, a guarantee. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13 and 14 spells this out for us. Look at this with me. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13 through 14. Just a little sneak peek. We're going to be starting Ephesians here in the next week or two, so this will... If you want to get a head start and read through the book, this is going to be our first exposition uh, in my tenure here, and I'm looking forward to it. I've been trying to do background work on it. But, but notice, notice with me in verse 13 and 14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Catch that? But look at verse 14. Who is the what? The guarantee the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. You know what a guarantee is? The Greek word here refers to something like a down payment. A guarantee that of the purchase price in advance. Now, when we purchased our house, we had to put a down payment on the home. Now, we all call ourselves homeowners, and most of you probably, many of you probably do own your home, but us who haven't got to that point, really the bank owns it. I don't own it. My name's on it, and I owe them a lot of money, right? But my down payment is a secure to which I will and it will eventually be mine when I'm done paying the loan off, right? But here's the opposite thing. This, this just brought great joy to me studying this. It's opposite with God. With our heavenly home, it's created by God. He purchased us as residents of it, and to guarantee that this home is ours in Christ, He gave us the Holy Spirit to indwell us and bring us on there. What grace! 
He creates this eternal blessedness. Purchases us in Christ who are unworthy, wretched, sinful sinners, only deserving of His wrath, and He brings us onto that heavenly abode by His Holy Spirit. Friend, that ought to to encourage you as a Christian. This was Paul's heavenly confidence. He wasn't too worried about the dismantling of his earthly dwelling. He knows a heavenly dwelling awaits him when he dies. But how do these truths impact him? Notice with me number two. Number two this morning. The bulk of the message was in point one, all right? Maybe. We'll see. Number two, Paul has a heavenly conviction. He not only has a heavenly confidence, he knows where he's going when he dies. But he has a heavenly confidence. And here's, here's the first aspect of his conv- or con- conviction. Is that he will be in the presence of Christ. He will be in the presence of Christ. And friend, that truly is what heaven is all about. Somebody once asked the question, would you want to go to heaven if Jesus wasn't there? Jesus is what makes heaven heaven. It's him. Notice verse 6 and 8. Verse 6 through 8. Notice what he says. For we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Now, he says in verse 6, while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have the Lord with us, just as we saw. The Spirit's our guarantee. He's in us. But he's portraying this reality that in our mortal bodies, we're not in the direct presence of Jesus, although he's still with us. But we are of good courage. We're of great confidence that we will be. Why? Because of what Paul says in verse 7. He says, we walk by faith, not by sight. Christian, this is the foundation to your faith. This is the foundation to Christianity. It's about faith, not sight. The world around us wants to be able to see everything to believe it. But I want you to understand that faith is something that is different. It is supernatural. It looks beyond what we can see or even comprehend and understand. We live by faith, not by sight. We look at things unseen and eternal. Not the, the, we look at things unseen and eternal, not the seen and the temporal. This viewpoint is rooted in the inerrancy, sufficiency, and authority of the Word of God. How is it that you have such faith whereby you look to the heavens instead of the earth? Because of what the Word of God has wrought in you. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The Word of God. How is it that you came to know Christ? Through the Word of God. But then we see in verse number 8, this glorious truth of what happens when we depart this body. He says to be away from the body is to be at home home, at home with the Lord. Friend, I don't know about you, but I I long to see Jesus. I long to behold Him. I'm so grateful for the Spirit that dwells in me and His presence with me, but I long to to be in His presence. We ought to long to be in His presence. And, And this is a true reality for us as believers, as the saints of God. You remember what Jesus said to the thief on the cross? He's dying in agony and looks to Christ in faith and he's converted there in his dying moments. And in Luke 23, 23, Jesus says to him, Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. You'll be with me in paradise. You remember what Paul said? I want you to see this. This is all connected. I'm trying to come quick, but just bear with me. Philippians chapter number 1 and verse 21 through verse 24. 
Look with me if you would at verse, look at what Paul says. Again, same, same principle. Philippians 1 and verse 21 through verse 24, he says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. How in the world can someone say that, to die is gain? Everybody looks at dying as loss, right? To die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between two. My desire is to depart and do what? Be with Christ. That's what he next says. But that is far better. Far better. Verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul understood that as long as he was still in his flesh, God was still using him to bring fruit for the gospel. But his inner desire is to leave and go be with Christ. Why? Because he says that it is far better. Not just a little better. Far better, infinitely better. It's in, uh, incomprehensible to us. We read of the deceased saints in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 14, 13, what a wonderful text this is of those who have gone on to be with the Lord. The Bible says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. How does the Bible describe those who have gone on to be with the Lord? They are blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? It pertains to being especially favored, fortunate, happy, privileged. The blessedness of the presence of Christ is beyond what we can comprehend. And this brings us to what Paul's conviction is secondly, not only that he will be with Christ, he will be in the presence of Christ. That's a given. But in light of this, and this really, I really wish this would hit home with, with every born-again Christian, but it just doesn't sometimes. If we really have this heavenly future and we're going to be with Christ, we should live to please Christ. That is what he says here. That's our point. He will live to please Christ. Look at verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to do what? Please him. Please Him. Our world we live in right now is so consumed with pleasing self, it sickens me. It sickens me. The idolatry of self permeates our culture. But if we are a born-again Christian, our life conviction should be that my life, day after day, Monday through Sunday, my life is to please Christ who purchased me. Because in the end, all that I could enjoy in this world, it's going to fade away just like this body. Doesn't go with me. There's one thing that's sure. I will be with Jesus. And Jesus truly is what matters to me in my life. You see, the brevity of life and the infinite importance of Christ brings us to consider our life. What are we living for? What are we living for? Some translations include here the aspect of laboring for Christ and pleasing Christ. See, every Christian has the responsibility to labor in some way for the Lord. Each of us is a laborer in the kingdom of God. Every little thing we do in our life is to be to the glory of God. We don't often think that way. Now, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. How much smaller could you get than eating and drinking? Not just going to church to the glory of God. He says, all that you do, you eat and drink to the glory of God. 
Every aspect of your life is to be done to the glory of God. Do not think that your life is not accomplishing anything or is insignificant. Christian, your life, every aspect is important. God is using you for his glory and his kingdom. And because of who we are in Christ, because Christ is risen, and because of our future with him, we know that everything we do in Christ, it's not some vain endeavor. It is purposeful. Paul says, in light of the resurrection to come, which is a, a, a heavenly future we have also, in 1 Corinthians 15, 57 through verse 58, he says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory over death, victory over the grave. Therefore, because of this truth, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Christian, there's some fruit we'll not see till we cross into eternity. But understand that every aspect of your Christian life is being used by God in His sovereign, providential way. Don't, don't, don't belittle the things that you do for Christ, no matter how little you think it is. It's not in vain. And this must be the conviction of the Christian. Paul said in Ephesians 5, and I won't go there for time's sake, but he said to them that they were to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That is how we ought to live. We need discernment in modern Christianity, discernment of what is pleasing to the Lord. So heavenly confidence must lead to this heavenly conviction and conduct. And Paul's life manifests this. And this is the challenge to me, it's the challenge to you. Does your life manifest that you have a conviction in your heart to please Christ in the way in which you live day after day? But notice within number three, and it just gets heavier a little bit here. Last point, and I'm done, I promise. Good thing is you have notes and you can see that there's not a fourth point. So I am telling the truth. Number three, Paul has a heavenly consideration here. There's a heavenly consideration that's on his mind. And that consideration involves the judgment seat of Christ. In verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due what he is do for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Two quick things. There is a place of judgment to come. Paul connects all of this. Our heavenly future, living to please Christ, to the place of judgment. What a sobering reality. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Not some of us, but all of us. And what is this place of judgment? Paul uses some language here that's familiar to his Corinthian audience. The word for judgment seat is the Greek word bema, and it was a tribunal bench in the Roman courtroom where the governor sat while rendering judicial verdicts. There's still remains of that seat there in, in, in Corinth today. You'll see it in Acts 18, 12 through 17. But Paul's saying here is that we're all going to be brought before the judgment seat, the, the seat in which Christ sits to give judicial verdicts. We're going to be brought before Him on account of our life. And Paul's pointing this out that from His own Christ will judge all of us. Not just some, all of us. We'll all be brought into that judgment. As Paul rightly said in Romans 14, verse 11 and 12, it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give account of himself to God. Think of that, Christian. You're going to have to give account to God on behalf of your life. 
what are you going to say? What will you be given count of? Now notice there's a purpose for this judgment. Letter B. Notice in verse 10. He says, we're all going to appear before the judgment of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. I want you to understand that this judgment day is going to do several things. It's going to separate the sheep from the goats because there's a lot of goats that try to make themselves look like sheep, and they're not real sheep. There are a lot of unregenerated people in the church houses pretending to be Christians, and they've never been born again. Judgment day will make that very clear. He will separate the sheep from the goats. Matthew 25, 32 tells us that. But the judgment day will also reveal the faithful and unfaithful Christian. The true condition of our hearts and what you did with your life on earth will be revealed. Now, I think it's to understand, understand the difference here. For the unbeliever who fled from Christ, they will receive eternal judgment for their unrepentance and their sin. For the believer, we will see what we really did with our lives that mattered. In Christ, It's important to note this, that there is a difference in judgment when it comes to the Christian and non-Christian. The non-Christian are judged for their sin, and they will give account for every sin they have ever committed. That's hard to fathom. Christians are not judged on account of their sin. Do you know why? The judgment for sin on account of those who believe happened at the cross 2,000 years ago. Praise God. I know I'm a sinner and that Christ died for me and that on the cross he paid for all the sins of Joseph Allen, past, present, and future. Now, that doesn't give you license to go do whatever you want, say it's all under the blood because if you're truly converted, you don't want to sin. You don't want to continue in that life. But that's the reality here. The Christian is not judged on account of his sin, but he is judged in relation to his new life in Christ and what he did with it. Christian, you've been born again, regenerated by supernatural power. What are you doing with your life for Christ? Because you have an eternal future. You're part of an eternal kingdom that will overtake all the kingdoms of this world. This is what it boils down to. 1 Corinthians 3, one last text and I'll be done. I skipped over several texts, so bear with me on this one. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 11 through verse 15, Paul is describing laboring and building and working for God. And notice in verse 11, he says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, judgment day, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. You understand the things that we do in Christ, they're either wood, hay, or stubble, or they're gold, silver, and precious stone. There's a lot of worthless things we waste our life on that are just going to be burnt up. They don't pass the fires of judgment on into eternity for reward. And that, to me, is an indication that we ought to evaluate our Christian life. In light of this heavenly dwelling, in light of our future in Christ, we ought to evaluate our life and say, what am I living for? Is my life truly Christ? Am I living for Him? I'm doing my best to please Him and bring glory to His name alone. Knowing that, Christian, rejoice. 
But at the moment you pass from this life, you enter to the glorious presence of Christ. There's no in-between. You go to His presence. If you're in this room today and you do not know Christ, that will not be your future if you are dying in your sins. If you do not know Christ today, understand then that you will not have heaven except you repent and believe on the gospel of Jesus. And unless you see that very truth, that your sin deserves the weight and wrath of Almighty God, and that Christ alone, Christ alone is salvation for you. I pray today that if that's the case, that you look to Him, that today would be the day of your new birth. Rejoice, Christian, we're on our way to heaven. Unbeliever, I call you to repent and believe on Christ. Let's stand to our feet and we'll have a closing song this morning.